0: This is FutureSight, a show from My Invent, where we explore emerging technology trends and new ways for you to adapt and grow your business. I'm Carrie Babaya, Chief Technology and Innovation Officer of My Invent and the co-host of FutureSight. In this week's episode, we're speaking to Stu Richards, who also goes as Metamike. He's the co-founder of Verse and Toxic, and he's been deep in the NFT, Web3, and metaverse game for the past couple of years. Stu's post on how he's experimenting with new Web3 and metaverse technologies is one of the main reasons we identified him and wanted to talk with him. As almost anyone who is in this space today knows that most of us are cobbling up solutions today. So finding a tinkerer and speaking to them is a lot more insightful than someone who already has all the answers. With that introduction, Stu, Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. We are so happy to get you on today because I got to be honest with you, this was my personal request to get you on the show. Um, normally, when we do these shows, generally trying to go behind someone who's already been doing a piece of work for a long period of time. So we can really have a conversation with them to understand the history and of of, of, of a certain space. But when it comes to Web3 and Metaverse, two years is like dog years over here, right? I mean, everything gets amplified. <laughs> so I really started following you because I was looking at a lot of the posts that you're putting up over there. And I was like, oh, here's someone who's kind of learning on the job. So what have you been learning, Stu? How did you get to where you are today? What did you do before and how are you in the Web3 world right now?
1: Basically, I was in digital marketing for seven years in programmatic advertising, and um, you know, was really focused on the data side of things, trying to figure out how we can integrate different data sources into you know the execution of media. But in 2019, I purchased my Oculus Quest 2. Um, I'd had one VR experience prior to that, and it was like a Kind of a game-changing moment it was uh, the immersion really took me um and i i think that that's kind of why i made that little investment once i started once i got the oculus quest i really wanted to get into it and figure out what could be done i'd had no prior experience with you know anything game or 3d related outside of uh fifa and madden and nba 2k but uh, i i was interested in the uh, applications of virtual reality for more realism based experiences um i am a uh, big house and techno fan during covid obviously didn't have the opportunity to get to to as many parties as i wanted to so i i kicked things off by developing a vr you know Warehouse party experience. Um, and that was, that was kind of my first goal with that is to try to create some realism, bring in some live streams or pre-recorded streams and create this virtual environment. From there, I was like, you know, this could be applied really well to the fashion space. And so I started uh, having a. Dig around to see if anyone was doing anything on that front, and I came across you know the likes of the Fabricant, uh, the likes of Jurassic, and a lot of independent designers that I reached out to and was like, you know, is there any chance you'd want to collaborate or allow me to use your assets and garments uh, to bring into these virtual worlds? Uh, I wasn't you know, proficient enough to be asking those questions. So it was a period where I got to do a lot of learning about 3D, about the optimization methods needed to actually execute this and bring it to uh, hardware. So in that time, I got familiar with Artifact. I uh, entered an Instagram competition, won one of their NFTs and kind of got into NFTs from there. Uh, And it, it, you know, the the space of how 3D comes together with NFTs via digital fashion was really that entry point for me you know, with these virtual experiences I was creating, my co-founder of Verst and I got together and we wanted to create virtual experiences and develop assets for virtual worlds, more on the Web3 side of things, the likes of Decentraland, Sandbox, crypto, Voxels, And so we started working with a couple of uh, independent uh, artists and designers on that side of things. Um, and then, you know, I did the Typical uh, 2021 NFT degen thing of trading NFTs, trying to make a little profit off the top. But it was really a a great experience uh, to learn about the intricacies of what was being done from a community side of things, from a minting side of things, from things like gas optimization, really some of the the technical uh, aspects of it. And after a while, back in February, um, I, I came along a company called Gig Labs, and uh, there was a position there for you know leading partner success and working with some of their enterprise clients to drive strategy for them. And so I hopped on board there, and uh, primarily working on their platform, Gigantic. We can go into that in a bit, but th- that's where my focus has been. And since then, I've really been tinkering as much as possible with all these advancements in the space across virtual reality, across augmented reality, more recently focusing a bit of attention on AI uh, and the expansion of different uh, open source and closed source tools in the space. For me, I really want to have an intermediate level understanding of as much breadth as possible and do that through constant experimentation of different tools out there.
0: So, how did you get into this experimentation? Do you have a technical background, or is it something that you just jumped into and just started playing with?
1: No technical background. Um, you know, it's it's. I actually did my bachelor in music technology, and it's funny how many creators in the space have a musical background, specifically music production or engineering. I think a lot of it has to do with the. Interest in optimization and the interest in optimizing pipelines, uh, but it's just, you know, a lot of these communities that I'm part of, that's just a key theme. So I think that's really the the primary link of interest.
0: That's super interesting because last time we had, uh, we did the last episode, I was with Rita Martins, who works at HSBC, and she kind of overlooks oversees a lot of the investments that they're making in FinTech, Web3, et cetera, et cetera. And somehow the conversation started gravitating towards how she got into this role, which sounded very techie. And she had the same kind of conclusion that you said, or the same kind of trajectory. She wasn't someone who's technical. She just got into it, tried to figure out more and more into it. And I think um, it's interesting that you mentioned that a lot of the people actually have a degree or training in something that's totally unrelated, but nevertheless, can find an application to that skill set over here today. What do you think is the reason for that? What actually changed that someone who's actually majored in in music production and everything else was able to find his or her feet in this extremely volatile and evolving arena?
1: Yeah, I think it points back to what you just said about the the interest in tech innovations. It's typically uh, something that especially if you're looking on more of the experimental music side rather than acoustic or maybe rock. Like you are constantly utilizing new plugins, utilizing new synthesizers, utilizing different ways of uh, augmenting sound. Um, Similarly to the arts, uh, a lot of folks that have come into the space are focusing on generative art rather than. Direct paintings that have been digitalized. The photography space is coming up a lot. And I think there's, you know, somewhat of a similar link um, in terms of being able to edit and ensure that the technology is being used to create the best product and outcome. Uh, But yeah, I think it's really that ability to utilize these new tools, these new ways of thinking, new ways of creating a way of living um, that, that's really brought a lot of people with that tech background into the space.
0: Speaking of bringing people into spaces, you've been part of three platforms right now. So you've got Versed, Toxic, and Gigantic. Uh, first of all, what's going on here? Why are you part of three? <laughs> right? I mean, are they different? Can they be consolidated? And which one should we really dive into? So
1: Versus, it started as a virtual world experience venture that my co-founder and I went on. That, over time, converted into a a community that we developed. Um, When I was in, let's call it Web2 or digital marketing, I didn't think that posting about virtual worlds and metaverse and Web3 was really something that ad sales reps wanted to hear about. So I, I created a separate LinkedIn profile. I go to MetaMic. I have no idea why that chose that name at that time, but I, I started to simultaneously while I was working in that space, build up a network in this new space, because it's really where I wanted to head. And as that network grew, we, we created a discord server for that network and basically transition LinkedIn audiences across to to Discord and maintain conversations there. So as commitments kind of expanded on both the personal and work front, uh, we, we kind of tapered off what we were doing in terms of the actual execution of virtual world experiences and asset development and more focused on just building that community uh, and, and creating engagement around that uh, as far as gigantic goes they've been running since 2017 i came on as a partner success lead for them and that is my focus we uh, are doing some really interesting things in uh, the space focusing on enterprise brands really creating a, a frictionless opportunity for consumers to get onboarded into enterprise brand programs. So, you know, when we're talking about this platform, Gigantic, we come in, we help the clients develop their strategies, Uh, we launch branded marketplaces that are fully customizable for these brands, we develop secondary marketplaces for them, so owners can trade and sell the minted NFTs that are utilized on that platform. We also have a ton of utility provided out of the box so you know brands can take snapshots provide airdrops create challenges for their collectors more recently we've added a, a couple of different token gated solutions to what we're doing. So, you know, holders of the, you know, the top collectors could get a early access to an upcoming drop, a complete gated access to a drop or a, a, a discount. And the last piece that I'll mention is we recently integrated with token proof. So what that means is a collector of a brand's NFT can actually access a, an in real life event utilizing their NFT that, you know, no one else who doesn't own that can, and that token is verified upon entry. So we've uh, done some really interesting things with a couple of clients on that front.
0: It's great. So let's jump into Gigantic. And for those who are listening, Gigantic is spelled G-I-G-A-N-T-I-K. The site is gigantic.io. And when I jump onto Gigantic's website, it says, grow brand loyalty, reward customers, and increase revenue with NFTs. This all sounds really great, but before we start thinking about how we're going to increase revenue, first, let's have a conversation about cost, right? If you're going to be working with large enterprises, especially at the ones that you're doing, their primary decision-making criteria is not about being able to to address a small niche Web3 clientele, which is still in the process of, of, of being created, it's more about saying that, okay, fine, if I do make the transition to a Web3 solution or if I'm going with NFTs to do my existing CRM or loyalty program, it allows me more flexibility, lower cost, et cetera, et cetera. The usual cost questions, all right? We don't have to kind of like uh, enumerate them. So, Can you talk to me about that? Web2 versus Web3. Does it actually make more sense to do a Web3 or NFT-based loyalty program compared to Web2?
1: I think at this point in time, there's a lot up in the air. We are so incredibly early on. Uh, I think a lot of the strategy has to come down with, you know, are you wanting to overhaul your entire loyalty strategy to be focused around blockchain-validated token ownership? I think at this point in time, because we have so much to learn as an industry, I think the best way to think about that strategy is through complementing your current offering. Now, that complementing can come through the way of rewarding uh, specific sets of customers um, that could be integrated with CRM and, you know, based off current ways of segmentation with unique access, uh, like I was discussing earlier. Uh, it could be, you know, if... A brand is wanting to develop out a complement to, you know, let's take the case of Starbucks, um, a, a rewards program. There's ways to really develop out how a consumer can benefit from the repeat purchase and engagement with a brand. I think in Web three, there's. So many different interaction points that can now be blockchain validated. So there's a, a couple of tools in the marketplace like Guild, I believe Hype Day is another one that allows verification of engagement that's outside of the confines of the walled gardens. So, you know, if you'd never before in a Web2 environment expect the ability for a user that likes a post on Facebook or shares a post on Facebook to then be rewarded uh, with any form of benefit because you know the cross-platform data just won't talk to each other. In, in these cases, you can because you can verify that action on- on-chain. You can also access uh create so many different variants of token-gated access through in real life events or through either content or virtual experiences. So say for example, your formula one and you're creating a, you know, a, a complimentary, uh, loyalty program, maybe someone that bids that wins an auction is able to get a custom voice message or video message from. The winner of a particular race, uh, the bidders, um, bidding over a certain threshold may get access to a private channel with a, you know, 30 minute uh, group chat with a driver. Some may get pit experiences based on token validated entry. So really the way that. People are activating these benefits for consumers outside of just trading on a secondary marketplace and you know, seeing prices go up and prices go down is the ability to create loyalty, create advocacy through unique engagements that haven't really existed before.
0: And what's the kind of traction or demand for these kind of very tailored personalized kind of interactions which work, which seem to work, at least as per your definition, in tandem with lo- uh, an existing legacy loyalty program?
1: Yeah, so I, I think, again, repeating myself, it's so new um, that really after the Starbucks announcement, to give context there, Starbucks is creating a, a Web3 loyalty program. There's a lot of brands just asking, you know, how do we activate loyalty? Uh, they're, they're not really sure what route to go. So there's definitely been increased demand from the client side of things. Uh, But in terms of the experiences, I think a lot of iteration needs to be done. So it needs to start out small with a a test of market to figure out what demand is, to figure out what pricing should look like for initial drops, if anything, to figure out if it's something that you are only going to be releasing as an airdrop or something free for loyalists. You know, Take the likes of Budweiser, they've done multiple NFT drops that are paid, um, but they are attracting brand loyalists who are willing to pay that to be associated with the brand and fill some investment with it i I think a lot of others are going to kind of bypass that route and say okay you know we're not going to utilize this as revenue stream just yet our focus is going to be on figuring out what the market looks like figuring out how we can onboard Our current customers and uh, really not just focus on the NFT collector side of things, but really bring in a new crowd and figure out what the technology behind that means. You know, how do we create a, a seamless wallet creation experience and build on that over time? Reward customers first then provide experiences to those engaging, then figure out what the next steps look like after that. Uh, So I think a lot of people are just like, where do we start? We want to go broad, but you really need to find that particular niche that you start testing with that provides an obvious benefit for your consumers.
0: So speaking of benefits, because when I look at the gigantic site, you've got you've got some pretty cool names inside over here, right? You've got American Airlines, CNN, the NBA, Spotify, UFC. Is there? And you don't have to kind of mention a specific client, but when you've worked with all of these clients and all these kind of advantages that you're trying to build or or, or at least seeing, is there like a particular story that kind of blew your guy your mind when you thought about? Oh my god, I didn't expect this to happen through an NFT based. Loyalty program, but something really unique happened.
1: I think the, and you know, maybe this is just personal, but the concept of challenges are really interesting to me to see how engaged consumers can be, how willing a customer is to be a repeat purchaser on such a frequent basis. I I think, you know, the best comparison I could makers to sneakerheads that line up for the latest shoe drops. The fact that you are seeing that from digital collectibles so early on, has surprised me to some extent, but I think also a lot of people plan on this being a a foundation for a, a new generation of collecting and rewards and utility. And so the earlier they're getting in and the as much they can, as they can acquire up front, they're seeing long-term value in that. They're seeing the ability to trade that on a secondary marketplace. They, they're seeing that the audience is just going to grow over time. And if they're getting in early and if they're collecting and if they're being able to aggregate these assets that they see as having future value, I, I think that makes sense.
0: Speaking of value, because... There's a bit of a contradiction now between what you just mentioned and what I've seen on your posts. You, I follow your post. Be careful. And one of the posts that you <laughs> and one of the posts that you had put was essentially talking about your your CloneX and you know you've you mentioned Artifact already. I've been looking at Artifact not just because I think what they're doing is really unique and and groundbreaking to a certain extent, but also because of the fact that Nike was able to make 185 million through the NFTs. So what are they doing differently, right? Now, everyone's on the Web3 bandwagon. Everyone's jumping into NFTs, loyalty program, or creating a metaverse experience for a brand. There's different ways to do it. But Nike seems to be the one who's been really minting money in this, um, pun intended. So what's going on with them?
1: <laughs> it's it's a really interesting story. So I'm going to go too far back, but you know, at least when I discovered them, I, I saw this new way of thinking about fashion. The fact that we are entering wearable economies uh, on so many different platforms, like Roblox is a clear and obvious example, Fortnite with skins, um, but They're all closed platforms. There's no way to currently to bring them extensively across platform. I thought the concept of having NFTs linked to this and the potential future for interoperability of those sitting outside of walled gardens was unique and was something that really appealed to me. What they also did was kind of tap into the hype beast culture of Web3. They found their niche in collectors who were interested in collaborations with artists. Um, so when they released their Clone X project, there was a lot of hype about who the you know collaborator was going to be on that. And when it was announced that Takashi Murakami was going to be the collaborator, that Really solidified this project for so many different collectors because it tapped into the art, the hype beast, the collectability, the fact that this was combined the, the rarity and um, hype of street culture, but also was looking to the Web3 side of things to kind of implement. I think, uh, you know, when they launched the Clonex project, I think it was three days after they launched or four days after they launched. Um, they announced that Nike were going to acquire them. Um, and the floor prices of those NFTs jumped massively. Uh, absolutely skyrocketed. Clonex eventually got up to, I think, 23 uh, Ethereum, uh, Ether at the the peak. Um, but a lot of that revenue is coming off secondary sales. Sure, it may not account for everything, but there is a chunk coming off of secondary sales. But what they have been able to do from a revenue standpoint is again tap into that hype beast collector side of things so they they created this term forging um which i do believe they created a uh because they initially forged um a few assets back in the day before they released their clone x project with um crypto punks and specific shoes for them but they created an entire suite of physical merchandise that could be forged. Or in other terms, you could own a NFT associated with a physical asset that you would get. So with that, unlike other uh, ways of going about it where this was you know free of charge to holders, they charged a pretty... Penny for these items, you know, especially at the price of ether at that time, there was kind of a bit of pushback from that. Uh, I, I think that the, in some ways, it's definitely warranted, but I think when you're looking at collectors who have made such a huge investment already, if we're talking about 25, uh, Ether, like, that's that's a large amount. And so with that, there's also the other side of things. And that is that if you held a clone X or uh, an NFT that allowed you to mint three clone Xs uh, early on, you've come out with a massive, massive asset wealth of NFTs that have been airdropped to you. And so they've basically found a way of rewarding the collectors early on by giving these additional assets that you know theoretically would make up the the price that they're charging for these physical garments uh so there's there's two ways of thinking about it and i i think it's definitely a smart approach it's a revenue generating approach for sure it combines concepts of giving loyalty by doing these airdrops but also found a path to give collectors the ability to purchase things of low quantity that could also have a large future value from a uh, fashion point of view. But they've simultaneously done a lot of work in the 3D asset side of things and being able to focus on things like asset interoperability.
0: Yeah, but that's just the incentive structure that you're talking about, right? So I get the the, the concept you forge and not only do you buy a physical product to which you get money in the bank right now, but you've also been able to create the necessary carrot that our people say okay, fine, not only do I have the physical product, but I've got this NFT that's attached to it, and certain ones, based on how much money you put, have got certain additional benefits, which I can get into. I get that. That I think everyone who's listening to, to that should get it. But why do you think that Nike was cool with the whole Web3 ethos that Artifact is pushing forward even now, uh, especially in terms of giving commercial rights to the actual asset that you own, to the owner of the NFT? That seems very counterintuitive. That's why you're on a podcast. That's why you're on a podcast. you got a lot to say. Say it here. Yeah. um, I've got a lot to say about that. Um, I'm I'm probably going
1: (laughs) to... Well, Nike and Artifact have been very much open to this concept of the creator economy and giving their community the assets and training to be able to generate content and brands from what they are given i think the the fact is that there is still you know when we're talking about commercial rights there's still a lot of things that are restrictive in terms of ways that you can utilize it, ways that you can tap into the the brand's IP. And and I wouldn't say it's as open as say a CC0 project where you you can do whatever you want. And I've seen people be kind of, had damage inflicted uh, based off of that, where they've tried to create their own brands or their own innovations With their assets, but because of what I would say is somewhat confusing terms, it's kind of backfired. And I think that's really, that's definitely fair on Nike's part. I think it's also interesting, um, because they have artifact creators. So they have a specific application that you can, you know, uh, complete that allows you to be a verified artifact creator. I'm not exactly sure what that means. But if you think about it, I think they're cool with it, because All of these people are posting their clones on their Twitter timeline. They're posting this content, this this new generation of user-generated content based off NFT avatars that they own. It's going to be hugely fruitful for them in the future, especially once, and I'm going to assume in all likelihood, this ties over into in-sporting experiences, potentially, say, uh, an AR filter on top of... A, a player in a game at some point, who knows? But it's free promotion that is tapping into a, although small, still pretty large audience. Um, but you've, you know, you've got people going out and spending hours and hours pushing this.
0: Yeah, and that's my question with all of this, because I get it from that perspective that, I mean, there's as a brand, that's what you want. People using your, your, your product, using your asset in different ways, and every time saying, thank you, brand X or Y or Z, whatever it is, because of you being able to give me the commercial rights to this, I've been able to unleash creativity, create my own community around it, et cetera, et cetera. How much is that actually valuable to a brand? If, you, if I were to quantify it, and you're a brand guy, you've been working in this, I'm not a brands person. How important is this for someone who's a stakeholder responsible for making a brand identity decision? How much does this actually have value?
1: I mean, I I think a lot, but at the same time, it's it's still a very small community, big but small. And I I think the interesting thing about it is that a lot of creators who own Clonexes have gone out and done their own activations. Uh, Korea is one of them that has been hugely successful. uh, CREA. They have launched their own digital fashion brand based off Clonex. So they've utilized the model, which they have the right to do without the use of artifact or Nike's logo. uh, But they've gone out and generated these 3D assets that uh, are wearable NFTs. And that's produced a huge amount of revenue for that creator but it's also given people that don't have the you know ability to go out and pay what nine eighth at the moment for a clonex to enter this community to some extent and I, I think that's valuable because you're having this brand loyalty with this end goal uh, of being able to own a clonex or able to own a monolith or, or something and something aspirational but you've had the creators go and create those streams for you put in the work create those loyalists that you didn't actually have to necessarily go out and the, uh, and acquire the communities kind of acquired for you
0: Yeah, but is this also why you're so bullish, and correct me if I'm wrong, you might be bearish, I don't know, but are you also this bullish about the interoperability of avatars? Because right now, that's the issue, right? If you look at a lot of, forget about avatars, if you look at any asset that's on a blockchain, it's kind of like dumb, deaf, and blind. You can only see it when it's over there. It doesn't really talk to any other blockchain. It doesn't have this possibility of being used in multiple contexts or multiple digital environments. So. Your last uh, post, and also I'm seeing a lot of the other kind of, you know, people who are influential in the space are starting to kind of talk more and more about interoperability, but from a technical perspective and really trying to see how does an asset over here make sense over there, both technically as well as economically, because there is a a transfer going on. What's your views on this interoperability of avatars?
1: My favorite topic. I I think at the moment we're in a pretty good place for how early we are so you know let's take clonex for example these are initially minted as 2d pfps profile pictures picture for proof who knows that visualize these characters at some point they gave holders the ability to download the 3d assets of these so you could go in and you downloaded like 14, 15 files dependent on what traits you had of your Kleenex. Now, there are open source tools such as Blender that allowed anyone to bring those assets in. They could then render some nice 2D images, but more interestingly, they can take those assets and export them in different file formats for use in different platforms. So I, I could take them, I could export them, I could rig them up for VR and utilize them in VR chat. I could rig them and port them over to Unity and export them as a VRM file, which is something that can easily be utilized in different virtual world web environments. The thing that's not ready yet is the on-chain ability to read someone's wallet in a virtual world and say okay i see you have a clonex in your wallet let's go bring that asset in it will get there eventually and you know if we take a look at some something like decentraland that's a great example of where that is currently happening where i can go in and i can either purchase wearables that are nfts and in Decentraland, I, I I can utilize them. But to your point, you can't really utilize them outside of Decentraland unless you have the 3D files. But uh, I, I think you know, there's a couple of projects in the space. Uh, Voids uh, or I'm a degen, um, They were one of the first to do it where they uh, allowed you to download your 3D Uh, avatars um, prior to that crypto avatars i believe was one of if not the first that allowed you to own that nft but also download that avatar so yes we are early on but i I still think and i've provided some guides about how to utilize your clonex in different places we're still in a pretty good place Uh, what it does require however is a lot of education and it's not easy for someone who owns this to go in and download the files and be like, okay, now I'm going to put it here, there and everywhere. It takes education. I think Artifact does a really good job at providing that education for the community. So the Artifact creators have like a, a weekly um, webinar where they go in and they, you know, help the community figure out how to use these. But it, it's relatively high barrier to entry for someone that's had no 3d experience
0: that brings me to my the topic that i've been really wanting to talk to you about about all this new mix that's happening thanks to nfts plus 3d visualization and automation Right. I mean, it started off around summertime. We had OpenAI starting to talk about DALI two. DALI One had come out, didn't really make that much of a you know noise and impact. I mean, people knew about it and said, okay, very nice, very cool. See you later. Comes back with a bang mm-hmm. with a real vengeance. And before, you know, we had just kind of like picked our jaws after they had fallen to the ground when we first saw text-to-image conversion at that speed and that level of creativity and finesse that you've got uh, mid-journey. And then before that, you even understood what mid-journey was doing, you got stable diffusion. And now there's a a whole bunch of other ones. Like I've actually stopped counting. There's Luma, there's Mirage. So what's actually going on over here? Why has this actually happened? And how is this impacting your space, which is this whole uh, creation of avatars and NFTs?
1: Loaded but fantastic question. I, I think starting off, you know, I, I was in the same boat where I stumbled upon Dali to, you know, before the hype, I will say, and was posting about it because I, I, I'd never seen anything like it. I, I think with a lot of the prior AI, the text generation and video generation by just multiple um, images, it was cool and Fun to experiment with, but didn't really represent anything. It was a cool way of thinking about art, but it wasn't applicable. It wasn't It wasn't ready to disrupt like it currently is. Um, and, and then, you know, got on to mid-journey, got in there, experimented with it, and had fun. It it was the beginning and you you saw that we had a long way to go, but it it was creating this unique way of thinking about art, way of thinking about generative creativity. I think for me, when I came across Stable Diffusion, and again, I'm not an expert in any of these areas, but I like to keep track of it pretty in depth, I I didn't really know what it was. But then I, I kind of learned about how it was open source and how it was composable and It was almost like we just hit that hockey stick moment where things were coming out on a daily basis where people were building on top of Stable Diffusion and creating all of these different workflows, all of these different ways of implementing it uh, that would just seem to be compounding and compounding in terms of the applicability of these technologies. The most recent thing that I've been looking at, I mean, most recent as in I am testing it today, uh, is combination of both DreamFusion and DreamBooth. I believe DreamBooth specifically was something that Google released. um, And I'm not sure how this all meshes, but then the open source version of that came along. Um, and so it's no longer strictly in Google's hands. It's in the community's hands and the developer's hands. And so at the moment, Dream Booth, for example, and I always get confused <laughs> with the two, but Dream Booth allows you to upload a set of images, however many you want, to create a, a training data set that allows you to generate uh, your own prompts, of. So, for example, you know, I uploaded eight photos of myself, only eight photos, and I, you know, wanted a representation of myself in Star Wars, in, in a Star Wars poster. And I could just t- type that prompt in, and within a matter of minutes, based off whatever um, GPU you're running on, uh, you have the ability to get a personalized version of yourself on a movie poster. And, you know, it's absolutely insane if you think about where Mid-Journey was a month ago, month and a half, two months, that we're at this point now. Now, a lot of what I'm interested in is seeing how different platforms and UIs are building on top of these open source technologies. It's those platforms that are gonna draw a lot of attention and potentially funding. But if if you can seamlessly integrate a, a nice UI on top of these platforms at a reasonable cost, it, it, I, I think that's really where the opportunity lies, either for creators or brands. Or yeah.
0: And that was actually my next question because I was trying to figure out how is this, this new kind of automation and content creation? Because, I mean, let's be straight here. These new text-to-image algorithms have now moved on to text-to-video. And still, you know, they're they're also kind of like making background environments. So increasingly, the necessity for someone to actually go ahead and create a piece of content, uh, which can be highly visual, highly interactive, et cetera, and very original, um, requires less and less input, less and less time, you could say. So how is this going to actually impact, firstly, the creator economy? And then, of course, brands, because at one point of time, you know the big difference between a brand and an individual creator before were the resources that was available to them, and that seems to have, have come to a kind of like a, an equilibrium today or at least like a more democratic standing so how's that going to how how are these tools going to impact them
1: maybe i uh, am being too naive about it, but I think the the concept of a prompt engineer may become something that is more thought about from a Branding perspective, or, or from uh, you know someone wanting to utilize these tools to provide artistic outcomes. What I mean by prompt engineering is basically the way to understand the data sets that have been trained, uh, understand the different features in terms of th- the prompts that can be used to uh, either develop or negate certain parts of the images coming to to fruition upon processing. I don't think that at this point in time, or it's so hard to tell because of how rapidly things are increasing, but I I, I think these concepts may start to integrate into some creative work. I, I think maybe from an outsourcing perspective, it may become a lot cheaper to produce a minimum viable product from a creative standpoint. Um, so I think that's definitely going to disrupt things. But from you know a, a real creative execution standpoint, you're still going to need a lot of resources to be able to produce the outcome you you probably want those resources may change those they they may come in different forms I, I think the other thing that we are starting to see and this is dream fusion is text to 3d uh and this is pretty mind-blowing where you can go in and you know i, I have been utilizing mirage for this which is basically a platform that uh, is a nice ui that allows you to process um, all of these prompts and all these different models. And I can type in a female bus made of ceramic. And within a relatively short amount of time, I was able to receive this not perfect, but really unique, well-structured depiction of this model. And so I see that as like early days on the 3D side of things. But once we get to the point where a lot of 3D modeling doesn't need to be done, I think that's going to be a major disruptor as well, especially since things are moving in a lot more of a virtual world space and a lot more of a 3D rendering rather than just 2D.
0: Yeah, no, that that's true. But um, there is one point I wanted to kind of pick your brain on, because again, I, I found a bit of a dichotomy, Stu, with what you were mentioning. So a lot of the tools that you've been mentioning are very open source. You obviously are a fan of using open source tools and the whole open source movement in general. But at the same time, I also saw your—I wouldn't call it a critique—but your thoughts on MetaConnect, and there, there were a lot of complimentary kind of like inputs you gave, right? I mean, in terms of like what they're trying to do over there. So I kind of feel that you're you're on the you're you're becoming the perfect middleman, huh? On one side, yes, open source, love what they're doing, gonna use them, support the creator economy, blah, blah, blah. On the other side, hmm, I kind of have this positive feedback loop to give back to Meta and what Metaconnect was all about. Can you give us two things? First of all, what do you think about MetaConnect? And how do you actually make sense of this juxtaposition between open source and closed metaverse, which Meta is trying to create right now?
1: Another brilliant question. And you spot on. I think over time, especially since Metaconnect, my perspective has somewhat changed. I wouldn't say I'm all pro meta fanboy. The most interesting part to me was definitely the the research and what meta AI is doing. Um, I think they're developing some pretty groundbreaking tools that will impact how the masses into this space. I, I think you're always going to have developers that are wanting to push the, the limits of what is happening and make that available for the masses. But at the same time, if we're talking about onboarding consumers uh, and increasing users and getting people exposure to these tools, you know, Meta's probably going to do a pretty good job of that. It's going to take time, though. It's going to take a lot of time. I think that push to web with Horizon Worlds will be a nice little catalyst, I honestly think. um, I'll I'll see what happens. But I think Among Us VR, I think that's going to be interesting in onboarding more users, uh, especially younger users. But the issue is the wall garden side of things for me. Um, a lot of people when Meta announced that you don't no longer need a Facebook account to, to access your quest. You just need a Meta account. And to do that, you need to transfer your Facebook data over to the Meta. And it's just, I don't know. The technology that they're developing cutting edge will be utilized by many. A lot of that work has already been being done by others that are working in the consortium way of thinking, but they're going to drive adoption. They're thinking about all the different components and how they will all come together in the way I, I kind of think about them. Because the way I see it is there's this North Star, there's all of these different technologies. And if you want to learn more about that, Matthew Bowles, the metaverse is you know, a great resource um, for that. All these different technologies are going to play a part. Um, Some will accelerate faster than others. You know, initially, I thought VR would accelerate slightly faster than it is currently. But we're all pushing towards that North Star. And I think everyone has that vision of where we'll be. Um, And Meta is doing a good job to cover the entire
0: basis of that. Yeah, because at the end of the day, the reason that I was talking about open source versus Meta is, for me, it finally comes down to the future of identity, right? I mean, and, and this is the kind of key point over here because one of the biggest frustrations that I have where I'm talking to internal teams or external clients or whoever it is, is there's always this kind of narrative that, oh, now that we've got the metaverse and this new kind of um, environment where people are going to interact in, we can get more data and analytics about the customer use cases, uh, or more 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 data and analytics which is connected to an actual person or, or their avatar whereas that's not really the objective over here right we're not really trying to get more data about you we want to be able to actually let the avatar live and breathe a little bit so how are you kind of because you work in brand, because you work in loyalty? How, what is your perspective on the future of identity? And more importantly, from the perspective of the avatar.
1: So, from a branding standpoint, the number one request is to get as much information on a user as possible, to get all of that PII that marketers are used to. They see the wallet address as a you know appendage to crm records i think there is a world that is you know building rapidly where that is going to be realized on the opposite side of the spectrum you've got the decentralized crowd that are, are wanting to push for self-sovereign identity are wanting to push for anonymity you know as it pertains to one's identity, an avatar that's linked to that. I don't think brands get the decentralized aspect of it whatsoever in a lot of cases. I I think it's still very much seen in a marketing lens. I don't think even many people in the, the Web3 space or the NFT collector space can kind of Express what self sovereign identity means to them. Uh, They may have just got into NFTs because they found a good project or a cool project or wanted to make some money. But as far as identity goes, I, I think it's still a very small portion of this niche. In my opinion, I think it's going to be hard to push to a fully decentralized way of living. Uh, we you know we're seeing this with so many different KYC uh, implementations on even you know Yuga labs' um, land drop uh, you know the recent shutting down and uh, arrest of the developers of tornado cash self-sovereign identity seems very distant and i think the way of kind of tapping into that to some extent is not requiring someone to have a meta account to be able to access a piece of hardware, because all of that will eventually go back into the ad stack um, in one way or another, and, and those behaviors. And you know, I'm not too sure what exactly they're going to implement in terms of things like eye tracking or things like microphone tracking, um, but. It's just another data collection and device uh, masked in all these, you know, cool technologies. Whereas on the other side of things, people are really trying to get away from all of the old way of living. I think naturally, you know, Gen Z, everyone who comes next is going to be cognizant of this. They're going to be looking into more solutions that provide that anonymity because they're educated uh, about these things and understand the impact of it. So. Yes, it's going to be tough to get to a point of SSI, but in, over time, there will be a slow transition.
0: Do you think that rather than focusing on SSI, a large company or a brand or who wants to kind of understand what's going on with um, a certain population that they want to engage with, should be actually focusing on and analyzing the data and analytics in a certain space rather than actually looking at an individual?
1: yeah yeah and I mean <laughs> this used to kind of be my forte, but um I haven't kept track of the space uh, that much recently, but there are I believe there are ways or there will be ways to kind of sandbox a an industry's data to be able to tap into the insights that standalone advertisers or brands would be able to get themselves i I, I think that anonymized data from larger sources uh, will be more valuable and more accepted by consumers to, to provide the analytics possible. Um, I mean, look, blockchain analytics, uh, uh, such a nascent space, such a high in demand space, the things that you can do with basically an entire transaction history of a consumer, no one's really at least from what I've seen, figured out how to do that and bring those insights to life in the way that the value that data provides can be extracted.
0: No, that, 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 that's definitely um, a key thing. And it's, it's something that I've been looking at more and more and I talked to my teams today that, you know, maybe we should think about it from the perception of the digital anthropology, because if you have all these different avatars, an avatar by itself is, is, is a lonely beast until and unless it enters a certain context, it enters a certain environment. And then it starts doing different things, communicating with other avatars, wearing different outfits in the form of wearable NFTs, etc., etc. And I think by being able to understand the cultural nuances of it, that's actually going to be the prime um, engine of of economic development and discovery moving forward. Um, Surprisingly, I thought I was quite clever thinking about it from the perspective of digital anthropology. But then I realized Meta has actually launched an entire new curriculum almost in a field of research called cyber psychology, which is essentially trying to do the same thing.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, what I was going to say is um, the other things brands need to think about is because every smart contract, you know, the title is visible. They can see what all their competitors are doing and what all their consumers are purchasing from their competitors, you know never had it inside like that before if i'm nike and i can go in and i can get all the addresses of what adidas purchasers are doing across all of their projects they can better understand well how do i segment these audiences how can i find high value users among these competitor audiences and tap into them see where they are see what you know type of products are of interest to them, develop a product strategy around that and, and try to get some of that market share.
0: I think you just gave a lot of content and brand strategists an idea, Stu, with that one statement, right? <laughs> so I don't know, maybe they'll cite you when they start uh, raising millions and millions in their first seed funding rounds. All right. <laughs> We're coming towards the end of the show and we've got a bit of a tradition over here. Um, in which um, I I call it the rapid fire question, right? So what's going to happen is I'm going to say one word um, and you have to reply either with another single word on what you think about that word or you limit yourself to five words, not more than five, all right? So take your time with it, but yeah, that's the thing. All right, first one, Clonex. My introduction to NFTs. Okay, Uh, Web3 identity.
1: Crucial, misunderstood. And yeah, crucial and misunderstood.
0: Crucial and misunderstood. All right, cool. Um, then next one, uh, digital fashion, digital only fashion.
1: Interoperability is key.
0: Um, the future of avatars.
1: A new form of identity.
0: Okay. And lastly, since we just mentioned it, cyber psychology.
1: That one's a tough one. Revolutionary. Okay, great. Congratulations, (laughs) Stu.
0: That was way than I expected. (laughs) Hey, man, just because I make this stuff up as I'm going along doesn't mean I don't know how to ask you a question. (laughs) But anyway, Stu, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really think what we were able to discuss today was the first part of getting an understanding of what the avatar economy can actually look like. I think a lot of what you were able to, 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 to talk to us about was actually signposts or variables that we need to start looking at, either from a cultural perspective, from a technology perspective, or from uh, an economic perspective or incentive um, um, perspective. So I think that's really, really interesting. And since people are going to have more questions about these moving forward, could you please tell the audience where people can find you?
1: Sure thing, Stu Richards on LinkedIn. Um, if you have trouble finding that, just type in MetaMic. You should be able to find it that way. I would say that's you know probably the the best way to get in touch. I, I'm pretty active on that. Um, you can add it's MetaMic on Twitter. Kind of try to change up the content on both of those platforms. Uh, but yeah, that's the best way to get in touch.
0: All right, perfect. Thank you for those at home who are listening. And if you enjoyed this episode. Then don't forget to listen back to some of our recent episodes on all things Web3. Uh, you can find them in the show notes. And do subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back next week where we'll be discussing more and more interesting and complex challenges and how technology provides an answer to them. This has been Future Sight, a show from Capgemini Invent. We'll see you soon.